Well, good morning again. If you will uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Acts 14. Before we read God's Word together, let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you to hear your word. Uh, we come before you because we, we need it. Uh, we need to hear afresh uh, your gospel, um, the gospel of your Son. And uh, we need to hear afresh of your love and mercy. Uh, we need to hear your truth, Father, in, in all that it says in the scriptures. We need to hear it. Uh, we need to receive it. We need to... Uh, take it in and feed upon it and be changed by it. And we pray, Father, that you would come and meet with us right now, that you would pour out your spirit on us as we hear your word, as we meditate upon it. We pray, Father, that you would work it deep into our hearts and minds, that we would understand it, that we would believe it, that we would be changed by it and begin to live more fully in light of it uh, day to day. Father, come and do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had, made, that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news." You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. 
When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed from Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been com commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples." How do you convince someone that the gospel is true? Now, that's kind of a trick question, of course, because you can't. Uh, only the Holy Spirit can do that. Uh, but how is someone persuaded? The Holy Spirit does the convincing, but he, he uses means, right? He, the Holy Spirit doesn't act on us like, like wood and stone, but as human beings, he works on and appeals to our hearts and minds and wills. Well, I don't have any super profound technique for persuasion this morning, uh, but I just want to look at, at Paul's simple biblical method of speaking to uh, the pagan peoples in Iconium and Lystra. And we're not going to we're not going to look at the whole uh, of the chapter this morning. We're going to we're going to focus in a little bit on Paul's speech and everything leading up to that. And uh, we're going to look at three things really. We're going to look at the the method, words, and deeds. We're going to look at a snag in that method and talk about interpretation and idols. And then we're going to talk about the way forward and coming to God like children. If you want to follow along with that, you can see uh, that outline on the back of your bulletin this morning. Uh, so first we'll talk about this, this method. Uh, what is it that stops people from believing the gospel? Uh, there are lots of things, I guess. Uh, some people would simply say uh, they, just, they just don't believe it's true. Uh, others would say, uh, others are maybe bitter about past experiences that they've had with a church or with Christians. Uh, some people believe that there is a conflict between science and faith, and they have chosen sides. Um, the one that I want to talk about first, though, this morning is that sometimes people hear the gospel, and uh, to them it's just empty words. Right? They ignore the gospel because it seems irrelevant or powerless or meaningless for them. Which I think is why God backs up everything that he says with deeds. Uh, notice uh, verses 1 through 3 again. Uh, in the beginning of, of, of verse 1 of chapter 14, Now at Iconium they entered together into the, into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Uh, now, we've actually seen this throughout the book of Acts, if you've been with us, that God bears witness to the truthfulness of the apostles' message by miracles done by the apostles' hands. 
Paul uh, calls these the signs of a true apostle in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The writer of Hebrews confirms the same is true in Hebrews chapter 2. Right? So, so how, do we, how do we know that the apostolic message is true? Well, in part, at least, because God testifies to its truthfulness by the apostolic miracles. The words are backed up by the deeds. And the next miracle recorded in the book of Acts here is in the city of Lystra in verses 8 and following. And it tells of a man who was lame from birth, uh, whom Paul commands, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. Well, why did he, why did he spring up uh, in that way? Well, I think what, what Luke is communicating to us. He's doing what he so often does in the book of Acts. He's connecting the story of the church back to the prophecies of Isaiah. You see, in Isaiah 35, Isaiah prophesies of the restoration of God's people. And in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And, and Luke, I think, is showing us, or God is showing us, right, that the coming of the gospel... Is, is the fulfillment of these prophecies. It's the inbreaking of this new age that Isaiah spoke about. And though this new age has not come in its fullness, it's, it's broken in and given us, God has given the sign of that through the hands of the apostles, that the lame men have begun to leap. The miracles confirm the message that the kingdom of God has come. But, and notice that, that, that word and deed then go together here. The, the apostles are preaching and they are performing these various miracles. And, and word and deed really go together throughout the Bible, wherever uh, we find them. Uh, think about the way God worked in history. Uh, think about God's uh, work through Moses. Right? God spoke through Moses. Uh, but when God first came to Moses, you may remember Moses was afraid that the people wouldn't believe him or, or wouldn't believe the things that he said. And what does God do? God uh, gives him miracles to perform, to testify to the truthfulness of God's word through Moses. And in fact, as you read through the book of Exodus, repeatedly in Exodus, God says that the signs and wonders are so that Egypt and Israel may know that God is the Lord. And so uh, on the one hand, you have the, the message that God is the Lord through the mouth of Moses. And then we have these, these confirmatory or if that's a word, confirmatory, uh, confirming, I guess, signs that God is the Lord through the hands of Moses or through the staff of Moses. The same is true with Jesus in his earthly life, right? Uh, Peter at Pentecost put it this way, Acts 2.22. He says, Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. See, the, the, the word in the ministry of Jesus, just like the word in the ministry of Moses, was confirmed by God through signs and wonders. And of course, the ultimate deed, as we read through uh, the Bible, as we read through the New Testament, the ultimate deed of God that testified to the truthfulness of God is the resurrection. Uh, in the resurrection, God keeps his promises to David that he would not let his Holy One see decay. In the resurrection, God testifies to the truthfulness of Jesus. He, he puts a stamp of approval on the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't deserve death in himself, but life, which means that the things that he said were true and trustworthy and right. And so God testifies to that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And of course, what was deed for, for God in Christ, the resurrection, uh, becomes word for the apostles, right? They, they testified to that resurrection. And so God attested to that message through signs and wonders done by their hands. Now, we've talked about uh, the witness of the apostles at times in the book of Acts, but, but here what we see is that miracles in verse 3 is actually God's witness to himself. That's what uh, verse 3 calls it. God bore witness to the word of his grace through miracles and signs and wonders and so on. You might ask, if God witnessed to himself through, uh, through deeds in that day, right? why doesn't he continue to witness to himself through the same kinds of deeds today? And uh, there are a couple answers to that question. One is that uh, the, the apostolic message has been confirmed. Uh, the Old Testament promises were confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus. The apostles' message was confirmed through the miracles done by their hands. God has confirmed his message. Uh, there's, there's no new message, so there's no need to confirm what has already been confirmed again and again. Right? God gave his message. He confirmed that through uh, deeds in that day. Th there's a second answer to the question, though. Why doesn't God continue to bear witness to himself. And that second answer is, actually, he does. Um, uh, skip ahead to verse 17 for a moment. Uh, in verse 17, Paul is speaking to the pagan people in Lystra. He, he speaks of God's witness to the nations throughout history. He says in verse 17, Yet he, that's God, did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And, and here's Paul's point. Uh, his point is that God is continually bearing witness to himself, not through miracles, but through providence. Who sends the rain? God does. Right? Who gives the seasons of, of fruitful abundance? God does. Uh, who satisfies our hearts with food and gladness? God does. Uh, rain and abundance and satisfaction and food and joy, these are gifts from God to all peoples. And if you have enjoyed these good gifts, you have enjoyed the goodness of God toward you. That is God's continual witness, right? His daily deed, so to speak, which should point us back up to him. And so here's this general pattern that we find in Scripture. God backs up his word of grace with deeds. It's, it's not deeds without the word of grace, Right? No one can come to faith in Christ through deeds alone. Uh, people must hear of Christ bearing sin at the cross and defeating death in the resurrection. And yet neither is it, is it words without deeds, right? Word and deed goes hand in hand. The gospel must be preached with words, right? It's a message. It's a good news. Um, but our deeds then bear witness to the truthfulness of those words demonstrated in our changed lives, Right? Words must be backed by deeds. So what does that mean for us? It, 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 if we are to preach the word of God's grace, uh, we must live in light of the logic of that grace. If we are to preach God's love through the cross of Jesus, we must live in light of that love. Uh, that, that does not mean that we're going to live perfectly because grace assumes sin. And so we, we, we wouldn't need grace if we had no sin. We, we don't live perfectly, but we can begin to live honestly knowing that our failures don't hinder God's love, knowing that our failures don't define us, but the cross does. We don't live perfectly, but we can live repentantly, right? hating our sin and loving our Savior, living a life of repentance and faith, of, of sorrow for sin, of, of joy in Jesus. That's what will bear witness to the truthfulness of the message of grace that we proclaim. 
And of course, even as I say that, you uh, know and I know, right, we both know that, that we'll often fail at that. Which is why ultimately we don't point people to our deeds, but to God's deed in the cross and the resurrection. We don't want people to build their hope on our deeds, but on God's deed. And so we hope that our lives will point people away from ourselves and to God. As Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? Our lives point away from us and to our God. And so if you're a Christian, right, the, the question uh, to ask yourselves in light of uh, this passage, at least in part, is, uh, are you living in light of this grace? Right? So we, we preach it, we proclaim it, we, we confess it. Uh, we've confessed it together this morning as we read uh, the creeds. And uh, it, the question is, are we, are we living in light of it? Now, if, if you're not a Christian, the, the question is a little bit different. The question is, well, what, what is it that you're actually looking for? Um, what kind of evidence, what, what kind of witness, what kind of testimony uh, are you looking for? Are you looking for the wrong kinds of things? Um, the, the greatest apologetic for the truth of Christianity is, is people living in humility and repentance. Um, we, we do that imperfectly. We freely admit that. Um, but that's the greatest apologetic that we have. And yet we freely admit that we fail uh, even at that. And so don't get tripped up by our sin. Um, rather, look to our Savior and trust him as your own. And yet these, these deeds, right, they, they don't always, quote, work, right? Uh, sometimes people hear the word, they see uh, uh, a changed life even, and yet uh, that doesn't mean that they're always going to be convinced. And so this brings us to the, the second point, the snag, Right? and the uh, interpretation and idols. You know, I asked uh, the question a moment ago, uh, what stops people from believing? And uh, one answer is something from us, right? Sometimes our empty words stop people from believing. Uh, but there's a second answer, that, which is something in the world. Sometimes vain idols stop people from believing. Uh, look, look again at our passage. Some, some believed the apostolic witness in Iconium. Others did not believe. The opposition eventually became so great that the apostles fled for fear of their lives being taken. And uh, the apostles didn't, didn't want persecution and suffering, right? They, they endured it when they had to, but they fled from it when they could. And so they flee here from uh, Iconium, and they came to a town called Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul performs a, a, a miracle, as I already mentioned. He sees a man who could not use his feet, according to verse 8. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. And there's this threefold rep, uh, repetition, right, of the man's plight, which then serves just to point out how bad his situation really is, how, how hopeless it is. And uh, the man, though, he listened to Paul. As Paul is preaching the gospel, the man listens. Paul looks at the man. He sees that he believes. I don't quite know how Paul saw that. Uh, maybe the Spirit uh, gave Paul that insight directly. Uh, maybe there was just something about the man's face as he spoke that Paul could see. This man is, is tracking with me. He's following. Um, and so Paul says in a loud voice in verse 10, stand upright on your feet. And the man leaps up and begins to walk. <clears throat> now, in some ways, that's nothing new. Uh, it, it's nothing new in the sense that um, we, we've seen Jesus do similar things in the Gospels. And we've even seen Peter do something similar in the beginning of the book of Acts. 
So what is new here? Uh, what's new is what happens next, and this is where things get interesting. Uh, look at verse 11. Verse 11, uh, when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, uh, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. There's some real irony here, right? Here is Paul and Barnabas wanting to turn them away from idols to the living God, and they mistake Paul and Barnabas for false gods. Um, but here's what's maybe important for us to see at this point, that, that God brings this, his apostolic message of the resurrected Jesus to this town. God confirms that message by he the healing of a lame man, which is a picture of the inbreaking of this new age and the inbreaking of the kingdom which is to come. And how do these pagan people interpret the apostolic deeds? They interpret, right, as we always do, we interpret life through the lens of our idols. You know, uh, Paul Tripp is fond of saying that we don't respond to reality, but we respond to our interpretation of reality. You know, think about it. How should this people have responded here? Uh, they should have uh, thanked the true and living God for his work among men. Right? They should have given thanks. They should have given praise to God. God had done an amazing thing it, right in front of them. He had caused a lame man to walk. The, the age to come had broken in, the, the age of wholeness and strength and freedom. Uh, but this pagan people doesn't thank God. That's not what they do. Rather, they assume that Paul and Barnabas are Hermes and Zeus. See, they interpret the work of God through the lens of their existing idolatry. Now, uh, interestingly, one of the reasons they might have been quick to do this is uh, a poem by a Roman poet named Ovid. He wrote a poem where Zeus and Hermes visited a town where no one welcomed them except one old couple, and that the pair of gods, Zeus and Hermes, destroyed the rest of the people. And so uh, maybe the people are quick to, to jump to conclusions here because they don't want their town destroyed, uh, possibly. But that's fine. That only furthers the point, right? Uh, that they're interpreting what's happening through the lens right, of their current worldview, uh, through the lens of their current idols. Um, you see, here, here's part of the takeaway is that uh, what's, we, we can't simply state, quote unquote, facts and expect people to believe because our point of division is not the facts. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and all the people of Lystra agree on what happened. A man born lame was healed by them and now walked. Everybody agrees about that. The facts are not in dispute. What was in dispute was the meaning of those facts. Do those facts mean that Jesus has risen from the dead and has given the spirit of the age to come to manifest the present and future kingdom? Or do those facts mean that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes come to walk among men? And this can be said not only for God's miraculous deeds, but also for his providential ones. Right? Verse 17, which we've already read, we'll read it again. Paul says that God did not leave himself without witness, uh, but he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Right? The, the quote facts, rain and food and joy, are not in dispute. 
What is in dispute is what those facts mean. Do they mean that God is gracious and good and sends rain on friend and enemy alike, as Jesus interpreted those facts to mean in Matthew 5? Or do they mean that, that we got lucky to live in a universe that can sustain human life and certain biological processes in our brains happen to register certain experiences as satisfaction and gladness? Right? To, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our toil, is it the gift of God or is it the gift of natural processes, the biological happenstance of an impersonal world? See, the, 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 the facts, so to speak, are not what is in question what is in question is how we interpret those facts. And, and notice that the pagan people of Lystra interpret the facts in light of their prior pagan commitments. And, and what this means is, on one level, you can provide word and deed all day long, but as long as people interpret that in light of their prior commitments, they will never come to faith in Christ. That's why people are, are mistaken when they often say, if only God would show himself to me, then I would believe. Right? If he would just show up, appear to me, give me a dream, a miraculous sign, anything, right? Then I would believe. They assume that their hurdle is lack of evidence. If only they had more evidence, they would believe, they think. You know, uh, one atheist philosopher, when asked what he would say to God on Judgment Day, is supposed to have said, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. But the problem is not evidence. The facts are all around us. Rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, the resurrection of Jesus, the apostolic message confirmed by the apostolic signs. The question is, how do we interpret those facts? Jesus told a story of a rich man and a poor man that both died. You may remember this story. The rich man wanted, uh, they, they were both died and uh, the, the poor man was there with Abraham and the rich man could see them both and apparently talk to them and uh, the rich man wanted Abraham to send the poor man back from the dead to warn his brothers of the coming judgment. And Abraham replies in Luke 16, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Right? Notice, if, if they just see something miraculous, then they'll repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Like, for example, Jesus. See, what does Abraham say? He says their problem is not lack of evidence. Their problem is an unwillingness to believe the evidence they already have. Words and deeds are interpreted through the lens of our idols, the lens of our worldview, the lens of our prior commitments. Luke 11, Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And in the context in, in Luke, uh, Jesus is talking about the people of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah, but something greater than Jonah was right in front of them, but they refused to see it. See, they, they would not see what was right in front of them. The problem was not lack of evidence. They had the Son of God standing in the flesh right there. The problem was a lack of vision. They were blind to what was right in front of them. Jesus, after the parable of the sower and the soils in Luke chapter 8, says, Take care then how you hear. See, it's not enough to hear. You must hear the right way with openness to God instead of hardness to Him. We interpret 
life through the lens of our idols. What is God's method of persuasion? Well, word and deed, but, but the snag in that is that we view the world through the lens of our unbelief. And so we misinterpret word and deed. Now, as kind of an addendum to that, uh, this often happens to Jesus. We do this with Jesus all the time. We don't take him for who he is. We don't submit to him as Lord. Rather, we, we reinterpret Jesus to meet our needs. Uh, we remake Jesus in our image, right? So Jesus becomes an environmentalist or a Republican or a gay rights act activist or a pro-Israel lobbyist or, or some other such thing. Jesus becomes little more than a, a good teacher who's on our side, whatever that side happens to be. And that's what happens when we try to simply add Jesus to our current worldview. As with miracles being misinterpreted, Jesus, too, has often been misinterpreted in light of the prevailing beliefs of the day. He's been co-opted by the cause of the moment. And so let me ask you, is, is there something that's stopping you from seeing Jesus for who he is? What is it that causes you to distort the message of the gospel? What prior commitment do you have? Maybe it's a, a prior belief that science and faith contradict one another. And so as a result, you're not even listening to the claims of Jesus. Maybe what stops you from seeing Jesus is bitterness, again, toward the church or, 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 or toward a, a Christian because of some past experience. Maybe it's a loved one, right? Someone whom you enjoy and delight in and cherish, and they're not a Christian, and you refuse to consider the claims of Jesus because you are afraid of the implications for this loved one. Or maybe it's your own sense of pride and goodness. And you've built your life on being a good person and the claims of Christianity completely undermine that and you're not willing to listen because of that. So what do we do? What, what's the way forward? Right? God's, God's method is word and deed. Words must be backed up by deeds. The snag is we interpret those through the lens of our own idols or prior commitments. What's the way forward? And that brings us to the third point, the way forward, which is to come like children. Now, again, we come back to the question, what stops people from believing? Uh, the, the first thing we said was something from us at times, our, our empty words. The second thing we said was something in the world, vain idols or our prior commitments to the stuff of this age. But the third answer to that question is something in the individual, that is the hardness of their hearts. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, uh, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, Barnabas and Paul are horrified at this point when they realize what's going on. Uh, it, it, it's possible that they didn't realize sooner because the people were speaking in Lyconian, we're told, uh, in verse 11, instead of the more common Greek. So it's possible that Paul and Barnabas didn't realize what was going on around them until they see these, cat, or, or these oxen getting ready to be slaughtered. When they do realize, they move immediately. They tear their garments in verse 14. They rush in and they cry out, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? We're, we're men just like you. We bring you good news that you would turn away from vain idols to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. And let me just dive into a few of the things that Paul says. He, he mentions the gospel, the good news that he preached. And he says the goal of that preaching is that hearers would turn away from vain things. 
and vain things here is, in some ways, clearly their idolatry. That, that language of vain things is used throughout the Bible to refer to idols. So uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 96, 5, For all the gods of the people are worthless or vain idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Right? The same contrast Paul is making here in Acts. Jonah, uh, and we've seen Jonah come up again and again in Acts in different ways, but Jonah says in Jonah 2, 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Right? So the vain, the worthless, the empty things are the idols of the nations, the false gods that they worship. And Paul says the purpose of his preaching is that they would turn from those vain and worthless idols and that they would turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. And yet Paul doesn't just say vain idols, but, but vain things. He leaves it open-ended. Uh, he, he means their whole former way of life. The call of Christianity is not just to forsake a, a certain lifestyle, and it's not just to add a few beliefs to your current belief system. The call of Christianity is a call to repent of a whole way of thinking and believing and living, to confess the utter folly of human wisdom, and to embrace God's way of looking at everything. The call is to turn from empty and vain things, including even your, your basic view of the world. We must repent not only of the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, as Peter says, but also of the futility of our minds, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. See, and, and the truth is, that there's, there's a sort of a catch here, right, that we'll never fully understand uh, who God is and what he has done until we repent, until we lay aside these vain ways of thinking will always misinterpret what God has done. Until we turn, as Paul says, from the vain things to a living God, we won't understand fully that living God. Now, of course, if that's true, why would we ever turn? Uh, if you won't fully understand until you stop looking at the world through the lens of your idols, why would you ever stop looking at the world through the lens of your idols? Uh, what Paul is calling for is not just turning from one thing that has less value to another thing that has more. He's really calling them to toss out the measuring stick altogether by which they evaluate what has value and what doesn't. So why would they do that? And, and the answer, in, in part, is because their idols are empty. Uh, that's what Paul says, turn from these vain things. Samuel said it hundreds of years earlier to Israel in 1 Samuel 12. He said, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Sometimes what it takes for someone to change is for them to see or experience the emptiness of their idols, for them to experience the vanity of this present, uh, their, their present way of life. Uh, I've never really heard Dr. Phil, but uh, apparently one of the, his taglines was or is, I don't know if he's still around, but uh, he, he used to say, how's that working for you? Um, you know, th that, that's one of the questions we need to be asking people. Uh, as we realize that, that when we live according to our own rules, life in God's world doesn't work. That's when we start to open up to the gospel. It, it, it may be intellectual. Uh, there are questions that we can't answer, right? Or we become dissatisfied with the answers that, that our culture gives. Or it may be moral, right? We, we realize that we've been making a mess out of life. Things just aren't working the way uh, that they should. Whatever the case, we're humbled because life isn't fitting together. The pieces of the puzzle don't match. And we begin to look for a better way. And it's then that we become like children. 
In this process of recognizing the vanity of our way of life, the vanity of our way of thinking, often happens when we come in contact with the gospel itself, right? Uh, we hear the good news of grace. It doesn't fit into our paradigm of, of works or achievement or hierarchies, the paradigms by which we normally live. Or we see people living lives of grace that doesn't fit into our understanding of sort of dog-eat-dog dog or keeping up appearances or whatever it is. We begin to rethink life. When we see something that is maybe so beautifully countercultural that we can't process it. That's when we don't know what to do with it. Uh, and so it rocks our world and we have to begin to rethink reality. It's when we see things that don't fit, that our paradigms, present paradigms begin to break and we begin to have to think in new ones. It's often when we see life that doesn't work, it doesn't fit, it doesn't make sense, it's then that we begin to be humbled. It's then that we begin to turn from our old ways of thinking and living the vain, empty ways, ways that do not profit or deliver, according to Samuel. And we open up to the gospel. We become like children. Well, what might this look like? I had, I had a friend who had spent years living on the streets in Philly, uh, doing drugs and living all the life that went with that. And at some point, he ended up in the hospital. This is one of those more miraculous ones, right? It's not always like this, but he ended up in the hospital. He was in the hospital room, in the hospital bed, and uh, his brother, who was a Christian, came and preached the gospel to him. And um, he realized, this is where my life has put me up to this point. It's literally put me in the hospital, literally put me on, on death's door, so to speak. It's not literally, but um, close to death. And uh, he, needed, he, he realized that his paradigm right, wasn't working for him. He needed something new, and his brother shared the gospel with him, and he believed. For others, it's, again, it's more intellectual, right? They're, they're looking for answers in life. Uh, they're struggling with questions uh, that their old way of thinking can't answer. Someone shares the gospel, and things snap into place, and they turn. Uh, for still others, it's, it's the kindness of a Christian friend, right? Whether that, that kindness is to them or whether it's the familial love that they see in the body of Christ, and they, they can't make sense of it. It blows their mind, and they become like children, and they want to understand. Now, I, I don't think, right, that uh, coming to faith depends on your life being a mess. You don't have to end up in uh, 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 the hospital or in jail or something like that. Um, things don't have to all completely break down intellectually or morally, but I do think we all need to become like children. I, I keep using this phrase, right, because Jesus used it. Uh, he used it in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, or, or we're told in Matthew 11, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. See, if we want to understand, the first step in understanding is recognizing our ignorance. It's being humbled and becoming like children. If you want to know who God is or who Jesus is, we must set aside everything you think you know and come to him humbly and ask. Paul says to the pagans at Lystra, you think you have life figured out with this whole Zeus and Hermes stuff, but these are vain idols. They will profit you nothing. You need to get rid of everything you think you know and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth. Now, we don't like this because, of course, it's scary. We don't like this because it means we're not in control. Uh, we don't like this because we don't know where it's going to lead. Um, but we must become like children and place our lives into the hands of our Heavenly Father. We must repent, not just of a lifestyle, but of a whole way of seeing life, to see the vanity of that way of living and thinking. 
and then trust in the living God and the resurrected Jesus. Because in the cross and the resurrection, we see what is truly beautiful and countercultural. Love in the face of hate and life in the face of death. And it's that, right? The, the love of God in the cross and the power of God in the resurrection that must rock your world and blow your mind. And it will if you come like a child. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would humble us, that we would come like children, uh, that we would come recognizing that we know nothing, uh, that we would come uh, confessing our ignorance, uh, that we would come uh, knowing that we have nothing to bring you, nothing to bargain with, that we would come simply to receive, uh, to receive your truth, to receive your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.